Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, the best podcast in all of Earth. Uh, we're talking about of human bondage, but first I just wanted to say big thanks to David. David, you know who you are, David. You know what you did. David's the newest Patreon subscriber, dropped in overnight. Thanks very much, David, for subscribing and supporting the podcast. If listeners, you would like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash the Hemingway list and you can do so for as little as $1 per month. Getting very, very close to our first um, Patreon goal. So if you want to help us get over the line there, patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Okie That's enough advertising for this episode. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 13. Is this an expression of guilt from Philip? And interesting to see where he is two years later. I am Norwegian, said Philip, or the narrator's, I guess, description of being separate from people in general hit home. My dad still talks about having that feeling. I've always felt it too. I wish I could forget myself and become like one of those social animals, losing themselves in some activity... Being too aware of oneself makes everything just a little unnatural. You're always aware of observing yourself. You are never just yourself, but also a spectator. I know that feeling. I drift in and out of it. It's not my default, but sometimes you do become a bit too self-aware, a bit too, kind of, a bit too cerebral, you know, in a time when you should just be in the moment. You're kind of you're too in your analytical part of your brain and you're seeing it from the outside too much. You're too aware of your own body, you know. Um, yeah, I know that feeling. It's not, a, it's not a good feeling. You do feel very much like an outsider. Uh, Swedish to the mum fish, she said, Yeah, I decided several years ago to try to become more social animal. Uh, it was actually pretty easy as long as I practiced and adhered to groupthink. I suck at groupthink. I can't keep it up. I realized I didn't want to be a social animal. My favorite quote from a very good movie, Clerks, Dante Hicks, but you hate people. Randall Graves, yes, but I love gatherings. Isn't it ironic? Clerks, good film. Swims to the moment fishy sword. Also said, is it an expression of guilt? I say no. Philip is sentient. Sentient comes from the Latin sentient, feeling, and it des- uh, meaning feeling, and it describes things that are alive, able to feel and perceive and show awareness or responsiveness. I applaud Philip's self-awareness, conscious knowledge of one's own character, feelings, motives, and desires. Uh, yeah, I, I applaud it too, but I I feel like he's reflecting self he is being self-aware and reflecting on his own feelings motives and desires with a sense of sort of a sense of shame maybe um i feel like he feels embarrassed and he'll grow from that and that he'll you know uh learn from it that's you know character growth it's human growth you know we we look back and we go oh i can't believe i did that and we grow not that he's done anything he should be ashamed of but that's why i think it's an expression of guilt because I think not that he exactly blames himself for what happens for his mother, but he just feels like um, he he was helpless to it. You know, I don't know. Guilt's a weird emotion. 
Fix the Blue says, two years on and in general school life doesn't seem so bad for Philip. It seems, however, that his current suffering comes more from within. I see him as a very intelligent, deeply thoughtful and highly self-critical boy. I think he may hold on to a lot of guilt, losing his parents, feeling like a burden, trying to live by a strict religious moral code of his ethics. Philip seems like the type of boy to torment himself with thoughts of how he messed up and said or did the wrong thing. We'll, we've all had those moments of self-reflection that make us cringe inside, but 12 seems awfully young for such critical self-awareness. I'm looking forward to learning more about Philip and the type of person he's becoming. Laura Weistich said, that was a big time jump. I wonder what is in store for Philip after all these chapters. I feel we only know very little about who he is. I would agree with that. We don't know a whole lot about Philip, do we? We're learning. We're getting to know him. But it's it's a good way to tell a story, I think. You introduce a character, and then rather than just sort of us knowing what to expect from that character right up front, it's like we're getting to know him slowly as the book progresses and I want to keep reading to keep getting to know Philip. So I think that's a good way to present a character. The little thing about him saying that the, um, what was it, like a pen or something that broke? Uh, and saying that it was something his mother gave him and that's why he was so sad, even though it wasn't true. But he still felt sad as if it was true. And, yeah, I feel like, he he invented this reason to feel sad and sentimental about his mother, almost because he had so little to remember her by, that um, the sadness that he felt over being sentimental about something that his mother cherished was genuine, even though the object of that was was fictional. He was still feeling a genuine feeling of sadness about like. You know, having lost his mother and not having things that she kept. Not having her, not having things to remember her by. Um, You know, he doesn't really have anything to remember her by. I think he's got a photo of her, but he doesn't have any of her prized possessions. So maybe kind of play acting like he did have one but broke it would give him a little bit of closure as to why he doesn't have any. It was a nice detail nonetheless. I really liked that because I could imagine that that what a confusing, conflicting feeling to invent something to feel sad about but then also feeling like the sadness was very real. I, 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 I don't know. It feels vaguely familiar from my own childhood. I don't think I really genuinely did that. Maybe. I don't know. You know when you're a kid and like you play act that like, um, like you invent, you know, an imaginary animal but then it has to go away to heaven or something like that and and you you make up this like super sad story uh and it's all a kind of a play game but you the the feeling of sadness that you kind of feel almost feels like for a moment in the game even though you know it's all made up you, you do feel a bit like it's real i kind of remember doing something like that um I love it when a book does that, captures something from childhood that we probably all did, but like forgot, long since forgotten about that feeling. But then when you experience it vicariously through the eyes of this young Philip, you go, oh, I do remember doing something like that. 
That's pretty cool. All right, chapter 14, let's continue reading. Then a wave of... That's a weird way to start a chapter. Then a wave of religiosity passed through the school. Bad language was no longer heard. And the little nastinesses of small boys were looked upon with hostility. The bigger boys, like the lords temporal of the Middle Ages, used the strength of their arms to persuade those weaker than themselves to virtuous courses. Philip, his restless mind avid for new things, became very devout. He heard soon that it was possible to join a Bible league and wrote to London for particulars. These consisted in a form to be filled up with the applicant's name, age and school, a solemn declaration to be signed that he would read a set, of por- a set portion of Holy Scripture every night for a year, and a request for half a crown. This, it was explained, was demanded partly to prove the earnestness of the application's desire to become a member of the League and partly to cover clerical expenses. Philip duly sent the papers and the money, and in return received a calendar worth about a penny on which he was set down the appointed passage to be read each day, and a sheet of paper on one side of which was a picture of the good shepherd and a lamb, and on the other, decoratively framed in red lines, a short prayer which had to be said before beginning to read. Every evening he undressed as quickly as possible in order to have time for his task before the gas was put out. He read industriously, as he read always, without criticism, stories of cruelty, deceit, ingratitude, dishonesty, and low cunning. Actions would have excited his horror in the life about him in the, re- in the reading passed through his mind without comment because they were committed under the direct inspiration of God. The method of the League was to alternate a book of the Old Testament with a book of the New. And one night, Philip came across two words of Jesus Christ. Sorry, came across these words of Jesus Christ. If ye have faith, and doubt not, ye shall not do this which is done to the fig tree. But also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all this whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. They made no particular impression on him, but it happened that two or three days later, being Sunday, the canon in residence chose them for the text of the sermon. Even if Philip had wanted to hear this, it would have been impossible for the boys of King's School sit in the choir and the pulpits stand at the corner of the transept, so that the preacher's back is almost turned to them. The distance also is so great that it needs a man with a fine voice and a knowledge of allocution to make himself heard in the choir, and according to long usage, the canons of Turkenbury are chosen for their learning rather than for any qualities which might be of use in a cathedral church. But the words of the text, perhaps because he had read them so short a while before, came clearly enough to Philip's ears, and they seemed on a sudden to have a personal application. He thought about them through most of the sermon, and that night on getting into bed he turned over the pages of the gospel and found once more the passage. Though he believed implicitly everything he saw in print, he had learned already that in the Bible things that said one thing quite clearly often mysteriously meant another. There was no one he liked to ask at school, so he kept the question he had in mind till the Christmas holidays, and then one day he made an opportunity. It was after supper and prayers were just finished. Mrs. Carey was counting the eggs 
that Mary Ann had brought in as usual and writing on each one the date. Philip stood at the table and pretended to turn listlessly the pages of the Bible. I say, Uncle William, this page here, this passage here, doesn't really mean that. He put his finger against it as though he had just come across it accidentally. Mr. Kerry looked up over his spectacles. He was holding the Black Stable Times in front of the fire. It had come in that evening, damp from the press, and the vicar always aired it for ten minutes before he began to read. What passage is that? he asked. Why, this, about if you have faith, you can remove mountains. If it says so in the Bible, it is so, Philip, said Mr. Carey gently, taking up the plate basket. Philip looked at his uncle for an answer. It's a matter of faith. Do you mean to say that if you really believed you could move mountains, you could? By the grace of God, said the vicar. Now, say good night to your uncle, Philip, said Aunt Louisa. You're not wanting to move a mountain tonight, are you? Philip allowed himself to be kissed on the forehead by his uncle and preceded Mrs. Carey upstairs. He had a good... He had got the information he wanted. His little room was icy and he shivered when he put on his nightshirt, but he always felt that his prayers were more pleasing to God when he said them under conditions of discomfort. The coldness of his hands and feet were an offering to the Almighty. And tonight he sank on his knees, buried his face in his hands and prayed to God with all his might that he would make his club foot whole. It was a very small thing because of the moving of mountains. He knew that God could do it if he wished and his own faith was complete. Next morning, finishing his prayers with the same request, he fixed a date for the miracle. O God, in thy loving mercy and goodness, if it be thy will, please make my foot all right on the night before I go back to school. He was glad to get his petition into a formula, and he repeated it later in the dining room during a short pause which the vicar always made after prayers before he rose from his knees, he said it again in the evening and again shivering in his nightshirt before he got into bed, and he believed. For once he looked forward with eagerness to the end of the holidays. He laughed to himself as he thought of his uncle's astonishment when he ran down the stairs three at a time, and after breakfast he and Aunt Louisa would have to hurry out to buy a new pair of boots. At school they would be astounded. Hello, Kerry. What have you done with your foot? Oh, it's all right now, he would answer casually, as though it were the most natural thing in the world. He would be able to play football. His heart leapt as he saw himself running, running faster than any of the other boys. At the end of the Easter term, there were the sports, and he would be able to go in for the races. He rather fancied himself over the hurdles. It would be splendid to be like everybody else, not to be stared at curiously by new boys who did not know about his deformity, nor at the baths in summer to need incredible precautions, while he was undressing before he could hide his foot in the water. He prayed with all the power of his soul, no doubt assailed him. He was confident in the word of God, and the night before he was to go back to school, he went up to bed tremulous with excitement. There was snow on the ground, and Aunt Louisa had allowed herself the, in, the unaccustomed luxury of a fire in her bedroom, but in Philip's little room it was so cold that his fingers were numb, and he had great difficulty in undoing his collar. His teeth chattered, the idea came to him that he must do something more than usual to attract the attention of God, and he turned back the rug which was in front of his bed so that he could kneel on the bare boards, and then it struck him that his nightshirt was a softness that might displease his maker, so he took it off and said his prayers naked. When he got into bed, he was so cold that for some time he could not sleep, but when he did, it was so soundly that Mary Ann had to shake him when she brought in his hot water next morning. 
She talked to him while she drew the curtains, but he did not answer. He had remembered at once that this was the morning for the miracle. His heart was filled with joy and gratitude. His first instinct was to put down his hand and feel the foot which was whole new, whole now. But to do this seemed to doubt the goodness of God. He knew that his foot was well, but at least at last he made up his mind, and with the toes of his right foot he just touched his left. Then he passed his hand over it. He limped downstairs just as Mary Ann was going into the dining room for prayers, and then he sat down to breakfast. You're very quiet this morning, Philip, said Aunt Louisa presently. He's thinking of the good breakfast he'll have at school tomorrow, said the vicar. When Philip answered, it was in a way that always irritated his uncle, with something that had nothing to do with the matter in hand. He called it a bad habit of wool-gathering. Suppose you'd asked God to do something, said Philip, and really believed it was going to happen, like moving a mountain, I mean, and you had faith, and it didn't happen. What would it mean? What a funny boy you are, said Aunt Louisa. You asked about moving mountains two or three weeks ago. It would just mean that you hadn't got faith, answered Uncle William. Philip, Philip accepted the explanation. If God had not cured him, it was because he did not really believe. And yet he did not see how he could believe more than he did. But perhaps he had not given God enough time. He had only asked him for nineteen days. In a day or two he began his prayer again, and this time he fixed upon Easter. That was the day of his son's glorious resurrection, and God, in his happiness, might be mercifully inclined. But now Philip added other means of attaining his desires. He began to wish, when he saw a new moon, or a dappled horse, and he looked out for shooting stars. During exceed, they had a chicken at the vicarage, and he broke the lucky bone with Aunt Louisa and wished again, each time that his foot might be made whole. He was appealing unconsciously to gods older than his race, than the God of Israel, and he bombarded the Almighty with his prayer at odd times of the day whenever it occurred to him, in identical words always, for it seemed to him important to make his request in the same terms. But presently the feeling came to him that this time also his faith would not be great enough. He could not resist the doubt that assailed him. He made his own experience into a general rule. I suppose no one ever has faith enough, he said. It was like the salt which nurse, which his nurse used to tell him about. You could catch any bird by putting salt on his tail. And once he had taken a little bag of it into Kensington Gardens, but he could never get near enough to put the salt on a bird's tail. Before Easter he had given up the struggle. He felt a dull resentment against his uncle for taking him in. The text which spoke of moving the mountains was just one of those that said one thing and meant another. He thought his uncle had been playing a practical joke on him. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Poor little Philip. Come on, buddy. Come on. How badly does he want his foot to be fixed? How badly does he want to be normal? I feel so bad for this kid. Have your say over at the Hemingway List subreddit. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Hemingway List if you'd like to support the podcast. Thank you for listening and I will see you tomorrow.